It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. When I left you on Friday's podcast, Control of the United States Senate, very much up for grabs. That is no longer the case, as you know, with victories in Nevada and Arizona. The Democrats will keep control of the Senate, reducing the Georgia runoff, which everybody thought would be the ultimate ball game, to a bit of a sideshow, but not entirely, as I'll come back to. Uh, but it's really quite incredible in this environment. You know, remember the red wave? Uh, the New Yorker had a good cover, an elephant riding a surfboard with the tide just bringing the beast onto the shore, but no wave in sight, and that's what happened. Um, but I want to say first, hope you had a good weekend. If you didn't have a chance to catch Media Buzz, some of the segments are online. While I was uh, down at Fox uh, getting ready to do the show, Wes Moore, the newly elected in a landslide governor of Maryland, uh, came into Fox News Sunday. I had a chance to chat with him a little bit. We had met several times, maybe 10, 12, even 15 years ago when he was trying his hand at punditry. And uh, I could tell then that this guy had something special. And this is regardless of whether you think I mean, the people of Maryland certainly thought he was way preferable. I mean, one by like 30-plus points over the MAGA candidate that was run against him. But Westmore is a guy who served his country in the military, uh, who came from a background of not much. And he's just incredibly charismatic and instantly becomes a rising star. He is not only the first elected black governor of Maryland. He's the third elected governor in the U.S. who is black since Reconstruction. So that makes him an, an instant national figure. And he just has a way of, I mean, I didn't necessarily see him going into politics then, but it's a natural fit. He's very disciplined in the way he answers questions. Uh, but he did, you know, the fact that he came on Fox shows you, I think, and I told him this, that you know, he doesn't want to just govern from the left. He talked a lot about the practical things he was going to do. He went to all kinds of different communities and neighborhoods in Maryland. So it was nice to have a chance to catch up with him. Frank Luntz was on the show yesterday. And, you know, first question, I hit him with something he must have known was coming. And that was you, Frank Luntz, predicted uh, that the House Republicans would gain about 30 seats or more, even more than in the 1994 Newt Gingrich-led takeover of Congress. And at best, it's going to be a handful of seats, and you also predicted a Republican takeover of the Senate. What do you have to say for yourself? And he explained the reasons why uh, he didn't see it coming. Um, he says that a lot of swing voters broke for the Democrats on the last day, meeting on election day. Well, whether his analysis is right or not, I did give him credit for one thing. He didn't hide it. On Twitter that morning, he, and people often like their stuff to just go into memory hole. He reposted the errant prediction, and he was hardly alone in that back in the red wave days. And uh, he said, I've been rightly, deservedly, he said, roasted for this. 
So, um, you know, you make a prediction. That's why I don't like to make predictions. There's videotape, there's Twitter. I'd like to give uh, a little wiggle room. Well, you know, I said, uh, anyway. Um, once again, hope you had fun this weekend. And let me just get right into it. Story number one. So now the question becomes the house. And over the weekend, you kept hearing, well, narrow path, narrow path for the Democrats, narrow path, which meant they almost had to run the table. They had to win most of the outstanding races, and the Republicans had to win relatively few of them. Well, three races, three House races decided just last night are virtually certain to be won by Republicans. And now NBC has become the first network to project that Republicans will, in fact, control the House of Representatives. Let that sink in. But you look at the board, Democrats won 216 House seats, and you've got the GOP at 219, could possibly go as high as 221. That means if the Democrats had managed to win two more seats out of the 435 they would have pulled off this incredible upset. Had they won a couple of those races in New York, uh, where the party didn't fare as well, where the crime issue was very, very big, particularly in New York City, obviously, and the surrounding areas. That's how close it was. I never thought it was likely that Democrats would hang on, but the fact that it was even close is, again, evidence that the red wave turned into a ripple, which is why I figured that, you know, whether Kevin McCarthy has trouble becoming speaker or not, because he's now got to appease his right flank with such a tiny majority, if indeed the Republicans win. Uh, Dave Wasserman of the Cook Report now says that there were three races that broke last night for the Republicans, basically leaving the Democrats no path if those were to be upheld. They haven't been called by the networks. But he thinks the Republicans will win those three races. That's how close it is. It's down to a handful of races. It could be a two-seat margin. Just goes to show you how important voting is. Um, and, you know, as I've said, even a one-seat margin, it doesn't matter. If McCarthy or somebody else from his party has the gavel, then they appoint the committee chairman. Then they get to hold the hearings, issue subpoenas, conduct investigations, whatever they want to do. One might argue that a pretty strong message was sent to get stuff done, cooperate. But, you know, Republicans will pass a lot of messaging bills, which won't clear the Senate. But the fact that the Senate will remain, at least nominally, in Democratic hands um, means that Biden can get his judges confirmed, get other federal appointees confirmed. And again... When Mark Kelly was projected to be the winner in Arizona Friday night over Blake Masters, another of the MAGA candidates, I thought, well, I kind of expected that to happen, but I wasn't that sanguine about Nevada, where the incumbent Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto had trailed by a hell of a lot. Her opponent, Adam Laxalt, as I often say, the son of former Senator Paul Laxalt, but then the margin would get closer and the margin would get closer and then she was trailing by 30,000 votes and then she was trailing by 9,000 votes and then she was trading by, trailing by 800 votes. And as those ballots came in, 
especially from the Las Vegas area, uh, they favored the Democrat. And then she, on Saturday night, was projected to be the winner. And therefore, I was able to go on the air and say the Democrats will retain control of the Senate. But I didn't know that, uh, actually, until I woke up Sunday morning. Now, for the Georgia runoff. It actually is important for this reason. If Herschel Walker wins, the Democrats will have the same situation they have now, 50-50, which means Kamala Harris has to break ties. And it also means that Joe Manchin is back in the saddle. You know, Joe Manchin, who had some tough words for President Biden when he made some remarks about coal country, uh, will be just as influential in the next Congress as he was in the last Congress. But on the other hand, if Senator Raphael Warnock can hang on, he had a very slight lead, but there was a libertarian candidate. I mean, it all depends on who turns out. I mean, the people being asked to turn out again and again and again in these things. Then Manchin becomes less important, and Biden has 51 Democratic senators to try to get stuff done. I still can't over overestimate with inflation running as high as it did after the election, it came down to 7.7%. And there are some forecasts now that it will continue to come down, we shall see. And crime, and all the issues that seem to favor Republicans. Turns out, and you can tell this by looking state by state, you know, the, the Democrats actually pulled off one of the only midterm elections where they just didn't get clobbered just because of the normal, and this is anything but a normal year, the normal um, loss of seats for the party in power in the first midterms, which is usually about 30 seats in the House. And yet somehow they pulled out the Senate. I mean, I looked at the map. There were all these sort of one-point races. You know, were they going to win Pennsylvania? Yes, Fetterman won. Were they going to win Nevada? Were they going to win uh, Arizona? And on and on and on. And they had to kind of draw to an inside straight. Nevertheless, they did. And you could see that more traditional Republican candidates, oh, say, Brian Kemp, the governor in Georgia, won by a much higher percentage than did the MAGA candidates. And by the way, when uh, Mark Kelly was projected to pull it out in Arizona, Donald Trump goes on True Social. He's been, you know, I would say tweeting up a storm, except they're not tweets. Uh, attacking, even in the last 12 hours, attacking Mitch McConnell, it's all his fault, and his wife Coco Chow, he's back to that. Um, he did two things. Well, he attacked Fox. I, I read all this on the air on Sunday. He attacked uh, News Corp, saying that it was Fox, New York Post, and Wall Street Journal, all of which, I mean, Fox is a, multiple array of voices. But you had Laura Ingram saying, you know, without naming the former president, saying if people think that one man cares more about his own ego and grievances, that's not going to play well. And then, you know, there were these banner covers in the New York Post, DeSantis, the future, and um, as well as Humpty Trumpty had a great fall couldn't build a wall, et cetera. Uh, and yet Trump says, oh, voter fraud. No evidence of voter fraud in Arizona. It, we all knew that 
there would all the anchors laid it out. There will be these late incoming ballots because of mail-in ballots, which Republicans have every right to play and probably should have made more of an effort to play. But instead, it, these went heavily Democratic and they would come in later and they either would or wouldn't tip the balance. Nothing surprising here. It's not, you know, and all the problems with voting machines, Republican areas. It wasn't only Republican areas. So there's that. So lots and lots of folks are blaming Trump looking at the, particularly the split tickets. And, you know, Trump, as always, made something about him. And tomorrow night at Mar-a-Lago at 9 Eastern, he's going to announce, at least his advisor says he's going to announce. He, he, he didn't care about waiting for the Georgia runoff, and he probably cares less now that uh, party control is not at stake. Just seems to me that there's a debate going on not only within the Republican Party, I mean, for example, the lieutenant governor of Virginia, Winsome Sears, said on TV, time for the party to move past Trump. So Trump goes on True Social. You know, I never really trusted her. Uh, now I know she's a phony. Why? Because she says it's his time has passed. And then you have the conservative media, as I was just alluding to, but it's not just Wall Street Journal, New York Post. It's Ben Shapiro. It's John Podhoritz. It's all these conservatives who basically say, and they're using the pragmatic argument that Trump lost in 2018, lost the House, lost the Senate and the White House in 2020, and lost a whole lot of winnable Senate races in 2022. Do you want to stick with a guy who keeps on losing and keeps on relitigating or attempting to relitigate the 2020 election? That's the debate right now. So let me get to uh, Andrew Sullivan has a really interesting take about all this. He says, I have to note that Biden's speech on democracy last week was in retrospect right in its priorities. Voters are worried about democracy's survival and Biden's distinction between MAGA Republicans and the rest obviously worked with some, including Republicans. And I also have been critical of that speech. And I'm perfectly willing to say that I was wrong. If it uh, affected some crucial votes, that may have been the difference between victory and defeat. Um, even voters who somewhat disapproved of Biden's record nevertheless broke for the Dems. Uh, he says that uh, I was happy to be wrong. I remain convinced that wokeness is terribly destructive to liberal society, but my obsessions are obviously not everyone's. And my fault was in not seeing how MAGA extremism, the sheer anti-democratic crazy of the GOP, was seen by independent voters as far more dangerous than the crazy left. So, okay, who's crazier? That's the question. The crazy left or the crazy right? Um, if I didn't live in a super blue city, I might have felt differently about my protest vote. But from the broadest perspective, I was simply wrong to emphasize the impact of the far left as much as I have. You've told me this many times. I should have listened more, and I will. The Dobbs decision, it's now clear, was a catalyst in mobilizing the Democratic base and persuading suburban white women to abandon the GOP. Where Republicans, this is interesting, proposed a clear middle ground. I've made this point repeatedly. What is the situation in Florida? Is Ron DeSantis uh, pushing for uh, an absolute ban or a ban with exceptions? No. He wants to keep Florida's ban after 15 weeks. There, they survived, Ron DeSantis being the clearest example since he won a landslide victory. Where they threatened to impose blanket bans or were indecisive, even in solidly red states, they lost badly. The Christianists caught the car. They still don't know what to do. 
good voters do. Then came Trump, his deranged fixation on 2020, the mounting evidence of his complicity in January 6th, the endless lawsuits and investigations, uh, his uh, raving. All these help remind Americans that he's A, bonkers, and B, toxic for all of us. His chosen candidates were almost all uniformly terrible. And he, he winds up by saying, however unpopular Biden is, Trump turned the election from a referendum on the incumbent into a choice between him and Biden. His ego demanded nothing less. And look, a quarter of the voters told exit polls in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania they had voted in opposition to Trump. He boosted Democratic turnout. And while Republicans were picking their wounds, DeSantis was their only really good news, instant party hero, and yet Trump instantly tried to destroy him while DeSantis remained aloof. That's why this time could be different. Well, as I like to say, though, we won't really know until Republican voters tell us that because after January 6th, this time will be different. After the first impeachment, after the second impeachment, you name it. Peggy Noonan in the Wall Street Journal. If in 2024 Republicans aren't serious about policy, about what they claim to stand for, they will pick Trump as their nominee and warm themselves in the glow of the fire as he goes down in flames. If they're serious about the things they claim to care about, crime, wokeness, etc., they'll choose someone else and likely win. I watched and thought, what I am seeing is the end of something. I am seeing yesterday. This is a busted jalopy that runs on yesteryear's resentments. A second terminus would be catastrophic with him more bitter, less competent, surrounded by collapsed guardrails. He and his people once tried to stop the constitutionally mandated electoral vote certification by violently overrunning the U.S. Capitol. If America lets him back, excuse me, if America lets him back, he will do worse. And America knows the man poisons his own movement. Okay, so these are people kind of from the right. I mean, Andrew still considers himself a conservative, although he voted for Obama. Uh, Here's the liberal perspective, Maureen Dowd in her New York Times column. Some of the GOP say attacking a younger generation of Republican stars puts Trump in dangerous territory. But that's how Trump got to the White House, belittling little Marco Rubio and lion Ted Cruz. The moment feels reminiscent of January 6th and its aftermath. Republicans go crazy on Trump, say enough is enough, as Lindsey Graham did at that juncture, and they act like they're ready to toss him aside, but it didn't take long for my Kevin, as Trump called him, McCarthy, to make a groveling pilgrimage to Mar-a-Lago. Republicans refused to convict Trump on impeachment charges and ban him from running for public office. Now they're living with the consequences. It's not hard to imagine this revolt against a revolting Trump, not that Maureen has strong opinions or anything, We'll die down in a few days and we'll all be back behind this person. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. She quotes Ron Brownstein on CNN saying, if blackmailing Ukraine, inciting a riot, trying to overturn the election, hoarding classified documents, using overtly racist language for seven years, including at Glenn Youngkin, you know, Youngkin sounds Chinese, was not enough to cause you to walk away from Donald Trump, then what makes people think Trump is toast now? 
Let's hope Republicans, says Maureen, get the message and move on from the king of crazy. Well, you know, I would, just, I would like to have two strong parties. A strong Republican Party and strong Democratic Party. Right now, until proven otherwise, the Republican Party is Donald Trump's party. And we'll see where that goes. All right, number two, this was a turning point, I think, involving Mike Pence. Everything that I'm about to say, quoting the former vice president, sitting down for his first interview since January 6th with ABC's David Muir in advance of his book coming out. You all know, I all know, everybody knows. But this is the first time Pence has said it. Pence said he was angered over a tweet by Trump as the insurrection unfolded, as the riot unfolded, when the former president said he didn't have the courage to do what should have been done because Mike Pence would not certify, would not refuse to certify, that is, Joe Biden's 2020 victory. The president's words were reckless and his actions were reckless. Pence said, the president's words that day at the rally endangered me and my family and everyone at the Capitol building. Again, he's saying it out loud for the first time. He's hinted at it. He's used indirect language. Now he's saying another part of the interview. I mean, the president's words were reckless. It was clear he decided to be part of the problem. And the former Veep went on to say about the president's words, I turned to my daughter who was standing nearby and I said, it doesn't take courage to break the law. It takes courage to uphold the law. His book is called So Help Me God. By the way, the, the unbelievably long pause as Pence was trying to figure out how to answer the question about Trump's tweet that day was really something to watch. How far was he going to go? And he didn't mince words. It's the first time he didn't mince words. Let's move on. Story number three. Well, this is just a little reminder of what the Trump presidency was like. New York Times scoop, and it's not anonymous sources. It's John Kelly, former chief of staff, former General Kelly, saying that while he was working for President Trump, Trump wanted a number of his perceived political enemies to be investigated by the IRS. Kelly, who was chief of staff from the summer of 2017 to the end of 2018, said in response to questions from the New York Times, but there are no quotes here, that Trump's demands were part of a broader pattern of him trying to use the Justice Department and his authority as president against people who have been critical of him, including uh, revoking the security clearances of former top intel officials. Kelly said that among those, Trump said, quote, we ought to investigate and, quote, get the IRS on were former FBI Director James Comey and his deputy, Andrew McCabe. Now, the Times had reported over the summer that Comey and McCabe, just sheer coincidence, I guess, were selected for rare and highly intrusive audits by the Internal Revenue Service in the years after Kelly left, because Kelly made clear that he blocked this. Kelly said he made clear to Trump that there were serious legal and ethical issues with what he wanted. He said that despite the president expressed desires to have Comey and McCabe investigated by, by the IRS, he believes he led Trump 
during his tenure as chief of staff to forego trying to have such investigations conducted. Again, here's, you know, you can put the two and two together. After Kelly left, Comey was told his returns are being audited in 2019. McCabe learned only last year that his 2019 returns are being audited. Sheer coincidence, right? Trump regularly made demands in response to news reports in which he thought his perceived enemies made him look bad. The president would carry on about having them investigated to the point that Kelly thought he needed to tell the president that what he wanted was highly problematic, not just potentially illegal and immoral, but could also blow back on him. Now that leads me to this piece by Andy McCarthy in National Review, who says, I'm now certain Trump will be indicted. The question will be whether it'll be one indictment or more. That is because he is declaring for president. Trump has jumped the shark, as the kids used to say. His gratuitous attacks on two successful popular Republican governors, that of course being Youngkin and DeSantis, both of whom, unlike him, could conceivably defeat President Biden, or some other Dem nominee in 2024, have ended his chances of capturing the GOP presidential nomination two years from now. Well, that's McCarthy's opinion. I think that is very much open to question, but let him continue. Justice would prefer to make a January 6th case against Trump. Prosecutors are pushing in that direction, says this former uh, U.S. attorney. But it's a tough case to make, former federal prosecutor, I should say. Um, they can't tie Trump actionably to the violence of the riot. They've already said he's not a co-conspirator, just a pretext. So he could be indicted for obstruction of Congress and conspiracy to defraud the U.S., but that would raise questions about, you know, whether DOJ was criminalizing political speech, especially, you know, if the Justice Department is bringing charges against the guy who's a declared candidate to run against the president who appointed this attorney general. Trump has given Democrats a gift, though. The Mar-a-Lago documents case, which arose due to bouts of gratuitous self-destructive behavior, similar to what we've seen the last couple of days, says McCarthy, is a comparative slam dunk. In other words, that, he says, you, that you could bring that indictment anytime. There's so many incriminating documents. They've taken testimony from witnesses uh, and so forth. Here's the question, as raised by McCarthy. Democrats want Trump to be the 2024 GOP nominee. Of course they do. He would have a tremendously difficult time winning another term. On that score, they've been understandably confident that he could win the Republican nomination and then they would crush him in the general election, where his presence on the ticket would supercharge Democratic turnout, raising the realistic possibility of complete Democratic control of Congress in addition to the White House. For all the vigor the Biden Justice Department is clearly pouring into the effort to build criminal cases against Trump, the administration would undoubtedly rather run against him. These two outcomes are not necessarily mutually exclusive. Well, I mean, he seems to be suggesting it could be a political decision. Let Joe Biden, since he's most likely to be the nominee if Trump is the other party's nominee, run against Trump, and that's a better outcome than bringing indictments. On the other hand, you know, Merrick Garland has pledged that he's going to follow the evidence 
And even if he does indict Trump, I think there's a certain chunk of the MAGA Republicans who would say, so what? This is all a conspiracy. Merrick Garland's just trying to help out the boss and so forth and so on. Number four, what about Biden? New York Times is an interesting piece. Even with the history-defying midterms going a long way towards solving some of the president's immediate political problems, I mean, this is a heady period for him. Uh, They did not miraculously make him any younger. Fact check, true. Week from Sunday, Biden, the oldest president in American history, will turn 80, which the White House will not be celebrating. Uh, So should he run for a second term? Top advisors, Ron Klain, Anita Dunn, Mike Donilon, Steve Reschetti, and Jennifer O'Malley-Dillon are already meeting to map out what a 2024 campaign would look like. The president said last week he intends to run, but would talk with his family over the holidays. Unspoken is the reality that Democrats have an unproven bench behind Biden. Biden. Many party operatives deeply worried that Kamala Harris could not win, with some justification. While there are many other would-be contenders, none of them has impressed the president enough for him to feel comfortable turning the party over to them. You know, if there was, here's an interesting paragraph before I bloviate about this. Some Democrats argue this is a situation of Biden's own making. Having failed to successfully groom a potential successor, consciously or not, making himself the indispensable man. But either way, it leaves Democrats circling back to the conclusion that Biden remains the party's best choice. So every time people say he's too old, he'd be 86 at the end of the second term, all legitimate concerns. And by the way, when you see this polls, like CNN said, two-thirds don't want him to run again. But that includes all the Republicans that want him to run again. The only thing that counts is whether Democrats want him to run again in terms of him getting the nomination. Uh, do I think he consciously didn't groom a successor? No, I think he committed to a, a black running mate and decided Kamala Harris was the first choice. But whenever people say, well, we need somebody younger. Okay, who you got? Who's up there? Gavin Newsom? Pete Buttigieg? Amy Klobuchar? Terry McAuliffe? The problem is there's nobody about whom significant questions couldn't be raised. Does that person have what it takes to go up against a street fighter like Trump? Raise all kinds of questions about what do they know about this and what do they know about that? What's their foreign policy? By the way, Ron DeSantis is going to need to be asked about his foreign policy, among other things, if he runs. Meanwhile, Biden just had a news conference conference today um, in Indonesia. This time he said, I'm taking four questions, one question each. None of this 10 questions apiece, as he did uh, before he left the U.S., And he just met for three and a half hours with Xi Jinping. And, you know, Biden said, you know, uh, he was blunt with me. I was blunt with him. Um, We're not going to get everything we want. He's not going to get everything he wants. And, uh, you know, I think they both want to make a show that the U.S. and China can work together on certain things, even as the economic competition obviously will be difficult. I think what Biden wants most of all is to not have China backing Russia on Ukraine. I think China's been uncomfortable about this, but hasn't called out its Russian communist partners. And one of the things President Biden said was that he wants to make sure there's no misunderstanding or miscalculation 
And that kind of brings up the question of Taiwan. He's known Xi a long time. This is their first meeting face-to-face as president. And they said their, their ministers are going to follow up and so forth, or cabinet members as we call them here. Uh, good. I mean, that can only be a good thing. Will it lead to a period of stability in this relationship? I have no idea. And Biden said, look, it's not going to be kumbaya. Nobody's going to get everything I want. So, but, you know, it does seem like, he says, the events back home uh, are sending the message overseas that the U.S. is back. Whether and how that message has been received, um, even if there is a Republican House, which, as I say now, looks likely by a very small margin, or even extremely likely, may even be decided by the time you hear the podcast. Um, You know, Chinese intelligence knows how to read the newspapers and read the election returns. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. I finally, story number five, Dave Chappelle uh, hosting Saturday Night Live. And I saw two different kinds of headlines on this. One was like Dave Chappelle denounces anti-Semitism. And the other one was Dave Chappelle embraces anti-Semitism. Okay, these both can't be right. But now I understand, having seen what he said. Remember, he was under fire for those transphobic jokes. And a lot of people on SNL didn't want him to to be a, a guest host. So he comes on, he says, I denounce anti-Semitism in all its forms, and I stand with my friends in the Jewish community. And that, Kanye, is how you buy yourself some time. So if he'd even just left it there, I'd applaud. But then he went on and on and on, almost seeming to embrace what Kanye said without quite doing so saying in his career, he's learned there are two words in the English language you should never say together in a sequence, the and Jews. And he joked about Kanye's DEFCON 3 tweet and Adidas. Uh, And he said it's a big deal. He had broken the show business rules. You know, the rules of perception. If they're black, it's a gang. If they're Italian, it's a mob. If they're Jewish, it's a coincidence. And you should never speak about it. So he's kind of saying, you really just shouldn't talk about the Jews because you get your head handed to you. Kanye got in so much trouble that Kyrie got in trouble. That's Kyrie Irvin of the Brooklyn Nets, who also you know, who endorsed this ridiculously, shamefully anti-Semitic film. What did Chappelle say then? This is where I draw the line. I know the Jewish people have been through terrible things all over the world, but you can't blame that on black Americans. I don't think they are. Uh, I've been to Hollywood, and don't get mad at me. I'm just telling you what I saw. It's a lot of Jews. Like a lot. But that doesn't mean anything, you know what I mean? Because there are a lot of black people in Ferguson, Missouri. doesn't mean we run the place. He said the delusion that Jews run show business is not a crazy thing to think, but it's a crazy thing to say out loud. Okay, so he's saying Jews run show business, but we're being told STFU. It goes on and on and on. It shouldn't be this scary to talk about anything. It's making my job incredibly difficult. So on the one hand, he comes out and, you know, I'm against anti-Semitism. And then sentence by sentence by sentence by sentence, he basically says, Kanye was right. Blacks are being blamed. You can never blame the Jews. Jews run uh, showbiz. But 
You can't say that, so don't even try. Which is another way of saying Kanye was right. I, I can't possibly feel good about this. I think he doesn't please either side, obviously. And the Anti-Defamation League has already denounced Kanye. So, I mean, here's a guy who Kanye doesn't want to move beyond this, has given no indication. And now Dave Chappelle kind of taking his side. And with that, once again, you can check out Media Buzz online. Hope you had a chance to see the show. Appreciate, as always, you're spending this time with us. And we're back here tomorrow with more Buzz Media. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.